0: One, two, five, nine. Robert Breach servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, yeah. elder, what the hell? A pastor. And the listener is here. What the hell is a pastor this week? Joe is somewhere, Cuba, Costa Rica. It's a mystery, but, uh, no, she's in Panama. I have to add that in there so Joe doesn't yell at me. She's uh, Joe is in Panama. Uh, I I think I assume with Ian visiting Ian's family in Panama, which is very exciting. And so I am on my own, but I have brought friend of the pod and a former guest from from a couple of different episodes. Nick, Nick, welcome.
1: Hello, it's been a while. Good to be back.
0: Good for Nick to be back. Nick is also, uh, I didn't mention this, but I might as well say it, Nick's also my best friend. And so it's not just that he's uh, a former guest uh, on the pod, there's, there's other connections as well. And I don't know what we're going to talk about. Nick and I will probably end up talking about a couple of things, but maybe just for the sake of you know talking about it right now, live in front of the world, Nick, what are we doing this weekend? Oh, good point. We
1: are going to see an indie wrestling show uh, together with our wives, which is going to be really great. I haven't been to a live wrestling show. I, I said this to my wife the other day that I hadn't been to a live wrestling show since my bachelor party, but that's not actually completely true. Angie, my wife, and I did go see a very small local indie show up north in Scranton, Pennsylvania, <laughs> out of like some very small county's fire hall. That's awesome. It was amazing. I had a great time. Uh, the COVID shutdowns happened like three weeks later.
0: So, right. <laughs> A whirlwind. No, no, that's, I I love that stuff. I've famously or infamously also got to see an equivalent show like that near where I served in Pennsylvania. And um, if your experience is anything like my experience, it was dingy and dirty and strange. And there were way too much kids there, but there was also too much booze there. And it was just, it felt like the Wild West and I loved it.
1: Yeah, this is fun to talk about because when you talk about wrestling on this podcast, it's it's almost always through the lens of the, the wild mobster-esque history of the WWE or mm-hmm. the kind of revolutionary fervor that has us going in AEW. Mm-hmm. And those are both big stadium show sort of events. And I think a lot of people don't realize that like, wrestling really lives and really like gets its breath and life from these small local like indie shows like at the end of the day professional wrestling is the circus unit right mm-hmm. it's a circus show and they travel around and they would do these things that's the dna of professional wrestling the the fact that it's all in these stadiums and stuff now i mean when did they start that even the
0: 80s yeah, they were running stadium shows, Uh, like the territory started running stadium shows in the mid 80s. So you had like, like a big when mid south, the Louisiana, Oklahoma territory, they would run uh, the Superdome. You know, that that's that was their kind of big place. And then like the WWF would run Madison Square Garden. You know, that was their kind of big place. So you, you began to see bigger and bigger shows like that.
1: Yeah. So I think it's always really cool to check out local indie shows. They're always a lot of fun. They don't cost a ton of money. You got like local guys just needing a hobby, something to do, you know, so they get into this like professional wrestling stuff. And, and like, uh, I don't know, it reminds me of like, uh, gosh, okay. So when I was a kid, I was one of those stupid karate kids. And I <laughs> I went to my martial arts school and I, I was part of that culture. And within it, we had a thing called the demonstration team. And I was a part of that. And, I remember uh, that. In like high school. And we would travel around to like schools and different people who were having like assemblies or events. And we would put on like some fake demonstrations of what we do and you would have to stage and choreograph these like fights so that you could like present it to people. And we're just some kids. We're just some schmucks who, you know, Mm -hmm. learned a couple things and we were, we're up on a stage in a middle school and we're pretending to hit each other. And the local events have that kind of vibe. Like you're, (laughs) you're you're going to like a very small little dingy show and uh, the adults are drinking way too much beer everybody's too close at the big events. Like they -hmm. have that stuff really well sectioned off and there's security everywhere. But, uh, you know, even just like at my bachelor party when we went to Philly, uh, to the old ECW, uh, arena, that's kind of like the Mecca of the indie scene. Oh yeah. Kind of, uh, that area. And it was cool, so like it, it fits what we're talking about, but it is kind of its own thing. But even there, like it has that closeness and that vibe, and like we had people, we were right up against the ring. We're screaming at managers; they're screaming mm-hmm. back. There's spits getting all over your face. You can throw a beer at them if you want to. I don't recommend it, but you can. Mm-hmm. And and they and it's just a different feel. And I have yet to take anybody to a live show even these small ones that doesn't immediately go you know what i think i get it yeah i think i get it now
0: yeah that's exactly right that's exactly right the seeing wrestling live actually in any capacity in any way like we've seen big tv wrestling live and we've seen you know we've been to the ecw arena a couple of times we saw a ring of honor show there when we were in college we saw you know the tommy dreamers Promotion for your bachelor party, and then you know, and also you and I have been to tiny little armories and little fairground, you know, warehouses as well. And all three of them are amazing. They they really are. Like all three of those experiences are incredible, often for very different reasons. But like the dingy, you know, grungy, weird stuff—that's the fun. That that's it's not that it's more fun. It's that it's dangerous in a way that some of the other stuff isn't as dangerous because for the exact reason that you said, right? Like these guys, the, the, the guys and girls who are on the card at, at, at the fairground or at the armory (laughs) are, um, ready to get into a real fight with somebody in the crowd. Like, like if they need to, you know what I mean? Like Randy Orton He's told, do not throw a punch under any circumstances or though at, at the big WWE show. But like you put a guy like Randy Orton in a dingy show, you know, at the Clearfield County fairgrounds, then Randy Orton is ready to start throwing punches because you got to protect the business and you got to protect yourself. And so if you go on YouTube and type in wrestler gets into a fight with fan, you will see the kind of venue that nick is talking about because that's where it happens
1: yeah and i'll and i'll say this too like um there's a a real boy not a realness uh it's choreographed it's uh it's booked is the Mm -hmm. is the language we would use in the wrestling world Mm -hmm. it's booked match um and people are putting on a character, you know. But here's the thing. In WWE, when somebody puts on a character that's supposed to be like a humble everyman character, the Dusty Rhodes kind of archetype, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just the, the son of a plumber uh, coming out here trying to make something of myself, all that stuff. In WWE, it's fine. But we know sure. they're getting paid millions of dollars. Yeah. Right? There's, there's no real delusion there for for most wrestling fans. Like we know that. This is a story. Fine. Everybody sort of accepts the social contract that you're agreeing to a story being told. That's fine. But when you're at these small local shows, it really is just Dale from the mechanic shop down the road yep. putting on some spandex and this is what he likes to do in his free time. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is it a show? Yeah. Is it a work? Yeah, I'm sure he Dale from the mechanic shop has a persona that he puts on. He's mm. the, you know, the Punisher. That would be weird copyright, but whatever. But,
0: like, he's but whatever. That's very, whatever. Indie. that's very indie wrestler, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Punisher. Oh,
1: God. <laughs> and sometimes it's great. Sometimes these small-time guys really put a lot of heart and soul into it. Mm-hmm. Um. And sometimes it's just Dale from the mechanic shop, like flopping around on stage. but it's fine because you see people really having like a good time. Kids in the yeah. crowd are always super invested in it, shouting, screaming at everybody. Uh, the best managers in these local shows, managers uh, in this case, just being people who walk around the outside of the ring, uh, you know, to engage the crowd
0: mm-hmm. while the
1: the match is happening. Ah, uh, good managers will really work the children. Oh, yeah. um, Really get up with them. I saw a kid uh, at the show up north. We saw a kid getting so so riled up. His face was so red, and he was about to storm the ring. And this manager screaming in his face. So this kid's got to be like nine, all right? Sure. And he's just screaming in this kid's face. The kid is screaming back and the parents are just laughing their asses off in the background because this is just like, this is the show. Like ultimately the kid knows what's happening. He's just so invested in it
0: mm-hmm. and they got him and it's cool. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, it's great. No, you're, you're right. It's amazing. And and this stuff like this is what cements my uh, probably undefensible opinion that pro wrestling should be given a pass on just about anything as long as, as long as the finish is correct. Like as long, as long as the finish makes moral sense by the end of the feud, fine. But prior to that, you know, if it doesn't make moral sense, it's very different. Then we're just dealing with the reinforcement of bad tropes and, and racism and sexism and and all of that. But if it's presented as a clown show and in the end, these guys and girls lose great. Then it's not. Then it's just a, a really fascinating kind of art form that allows us to look at ourselves uh, in a kind of an exaggerated way. So, like in AEW right now, uh, the the next coming pay per view is Samoa Joe is champion currently, and Swerve and Hangman are are feuding. They've been in a couple of month long feud, um, and basically the feud is I I think is to get Swerve inevitably to the world title cuz Swerve is super hot right now in AEW and to get Hangman to turn heel. And and so currently I think that's where this is going. Like they've changed Hangman's look. Actually they changed Hangman's look to a Magnum TA look. Do you know Magnum TA? You ever hear of that wrestler?
1: No, I'm not familiar with Magnum TA. Tell me about Magnum TA.
0: I'll I'll tell you just a little bit. So Magnum TA So in the early '80s, there's the promotion that would end up becoming WCW, was the Mid Atlantic promotion, Uh, so that's the Carolinas and and stuff. And they had a lot of money, and they were really successful. They had, you know, all kinds of great uh, cities that they ran, and you know, Ric Flair was was there, like, and and Dusty was there, and then Dusty became the booker for a while, like, like it was just a really hot territory. And as like Hulk Hogan started his like years and years of being on top in the WWF, they, there's this young guy who comes up, you know, through other kind of smaller territories that Mid-Atlantic ends up getting named Terry Allen. And he basically goes on to become this mega babyface in the Mid-Atlantic territory like like mega mega level baby face dusty books him to to go up against nikita koloff who's the 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 big russian heel at the time and magnum's whole look was he looked he was real good looking he had kind of long blonde hair he had a a magnum pi mustache so like a tom Selleck mustache And he just was in great shape and he looked really good. And the guy could talk like a son of a bitch. And the guy's entering psychology was really, really good. And people were nuts about him. And, and like they talked about how, like, proportionally, you know, even though because they didn't have national TV, they couldn't at the time, they couldn't really judge it. But, like, proportionally, Magnum TA was making just as much money for jim crockett promotion as hulk hogan was like this was like a real like centerpiece of like a wrestler and he only wrestled for about five years total so he was only like on top in mid-atlantic for like a year and a half uh because he gets into a a car accident and becomes paralyzed from the neck down and that's the end of magnum like and and it just ends wow yeah it's really sad it's it's really he's still alive but he's uh, it's pretty upsetting. Anyway, Hangman is completely changing his look to look like Magnum T A, and it's perfect. It looks really good. Like I'm gonna, I'll send you something right now.
1: Yeah, send it over. I'm a big fan of Hangman. There's been a lot of drama around the elite, and Hangman gets kind of pulled into that. He got some heat backstage. He got into a, like a tussle. But mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I think give Hangman whatever. I still say that he's got the look.
0: Yeah, I think Hangman has the potential. It's not that I don't think Hangman's got the potential. I think that there's not enough space for him right now in AEW. I think if he wanted to turn heel, that's the that's the best option. But if he wanted to continue to be like a babyface, I'm like, he should consider going to Japan. Because he'd make good money in Japan. That's true. They love, they love cowboys. All right, so here's Magnum TA. Okay.
1: Sure, I see how Hangman arrives here, right? Mm-hmm. Black, uh, kind of cowboy vest, and just some uh, trunks,
0: right? But I, where is Mustache that moustache mullet? Because he's grown it out, like, like the the whole look, the whole Hangman look, really has changed, like in a really cool way. All right, here we go.
1: Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I see what you're going for here. So I, yeah, I really he, think you know, it's... he should consider shaving down to just the mustache. So, I don't know. So so
0: he has, he has at this point. That's that's not even the the most recent one. This, is a, one. The, this uh, is a better one. The the
1: mustache one. look is coming back.
0: Yeah, I think it and I think it's right to have the the pro wrestlers of the world be uh, the ones who are doing it. <laughs>
1: mhm.
0: Here we go. So this is this is the last one I'll send you. This is what he looks like more more recently. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. I like it. Yeah, it's a good choice. He's, he's not wearing anything colorful anymore. You know, it's all black leather and, you know, and and kind of that. Um, And I just think it's smart. Magnum TA is a little bit of a better talker. But I think that's also why Hangman's got to turn heel. Everybody just loves Swerve too much. You know, like there's just like Swerve's a heel right now, but like, no, everybody's, everybody's ready. Everybody just wants Swerve to be the guy. And so for Hangman to transition into, and he's bulking up a lot, like he's really getting big. So for Hangman to transition into just like a pure like bruiser, you know, bad guy, I think is smart.
1: Oh, yeah. Give him some work with Mox. Mox will get him there. You know what I mean? I, I agree.
0: Yeah, man. Basically we'll delete a lot we'll delete all that middle stuff all of it nothing is usable from the past like 10 minutes Um, but but i love this stuff i'm so excited to be able to go with you and Ange and and beth and and emily will be with us too to the show and charlotte it's we're going to charlotte it's it's actually an all black wrestling promotion called Ashe wrestling and um i've been i'll send more stuff to you guys we might probably just watch it on the way down but like they've been promoting them the show and the matches with different pre-tape vignettes that i just think are really good and the, i think the vibes really great and and the guy who runs it is uh darius lockhart who's a an indie wrestler that i just think the world of i think i think his work is really great and i think his character is fascinating you know just this kind of revolutionary black panther style character and he, you know, he is wrestling in the promotion, but he also owns the promotion. And you know, he had taken a couple of years off, so it, it's really exciting. The first show they did, Jonathan Gresham headlined it, and man, if Jonathan Gresham was here this time, I'd freaking lose my mind. That would be wild. But uh, but I'm either way, it'll be cool to see everybody.
1: It'll be a great trip. It'll be great to see some live wrestling. It'll be great to be. In a state that isn't freaking Pennsylvania for a little bit. Uh, And yeah, it'll be good all the way around. Absolutely. Absolutely. This concludes the wrestling hour.
0: (laughs) It was good. No, that's good. That's like a solid 18 minutes of of stuff we can use. That's fine. That's fine. (laughs) I accept that. So, Nick, we – on the podcast uh, for a few weeks – You know, we've been taught, Joe and I have been talking about different theology stuff. One of the things that has recently been coming up with me is I've been diving more into Tillich instead of doing the work I should be doing and spending some time reading a guy named John Caputo, who's Tillichian, and um, just thinking sort of more and more about um, what we in the podcast have called post-theism, of which Tillich is usually considered like the first thoroughgoing post-theist for a few reasons. But uh, I hear that that is something that you have been considering as well.
1: Yeah, so I'm a Tillich type of person early on in college when I'm sort of exploring Christian thought, any religious thought on an academic level for the first time. Tillich's one of the first names that I came across. Mm-hmm for these major thinkers. And so just by that alone being one of the earliest people that I read and like sort of internalized, um, a lot of his thought really sticks with me and haunts me as we like to say. Mm. Mm. And you've been pulling up this language that the, the post theism and I, and I'm, I think I'm following most of the time, but, mm. I, but I, I guess I just wanted to ask a little clarification, like, what what really do we mean when we say post theism Mm. and how is it not the same as atheism with extra
0: steps Mm, mm. yeah those are both very good questions um so post theism Uh, Is not like a monolith. There's not like a, there's not like one way of doing post theism Tillich. When we say that Tillich is probably the first thoroughgoing post theist, I can explain more of what that means. But um, in general, it's good to start with Tillich because some of Tillich's um, uh, uh, methodological moves are moves that almost all post theists do. So if I can bracket aside what Tillich thinks God is for a second, one of the things that Tillich does that pretty much every posttheist agrees is like the only step forward is Tillich reframes everything in terms of um, hermeneutics. And so what that means for Tillich is his theology of symbols comes into like the foreground and says – we can talk about God post theistically, and I can, I'll say what I mean more about that in a second. We can talk about God post theistically only if we understand that all of our God language is essentially symbolic and does not actually describe um, a thing in space. Um, Language is usually meant to describe things, like that's why we have it, or like feelings or or states or whatever, um, states of being and stuff. But since God is not a thing, because that would make God uh, a a creature in some way, um, our language about God is always, uh, it, it never gets at the truly true thing about God. Um, not necessarily because God is a hundred percent unknowable. That's not necessarily true. It's not that Tillich thinks that God is this void that we can say nothing about. Uh, it just means that for Tillich, all of our language is relativized. It, it enters into the realm of symbol, and symbol is very lovely and very complicated, and and laden with meaning, and 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 multi-layered, and and really great. But it is the symbol of never just the thing, right? Like it is, it is always points rather than points to itself. And that's something, that, that idea, that idea every post-theist has. Every post-theist learns that first from Tillich. And they go, yeah, that's got to be it. There, there's no other way. And so you have post-theists who do poetics because po- poetry and stuff like that are, is – very is, is pure symbol, right? Like it's pure symbol all the way down. You have uh post-theists who go um who who instead focus on particular symbols and in this way um you have somebody like Dorothe Zola who's a post-theist that I really admire who focuses on Jesus as the eminent symbol of God right like we can we can't say much about God, but we can say some things about Jesus and the kinds of stuff that Jesus, the meaning of Jesus as this divine symbol, you know, we can kind of do stuff with. John Caputo's a post-theist, and one of my favorite things John Caputo says, particularly of Jesus, is that we should read Jesus as performing a kind of poetry. And, and so when we read about Jesus, what we see Jesus doing according to Caputo, is that Jesus is um, uttering and making poetry and and performing acts that are meant to name God and, and help us see God, whatever God is, sort of in our lives and in the world. Does Jesus invent God? No, you know, that's not what we're saying. That's not what a post-theist would say. But a post-theist would say that Jesus is doing the only thing that human beings can do when we talk about God, which is um, to to be creative and um, speak poetically and symbolically.
1: I just don't understand why this isn't sort of a part of all Christian theology. Like Mm. to me, we say this and it sounds so obviously true, Mm-hmm. Um, that the only, just the basic stuff, right? The only way we can possibly articulate about God is through symbol because everything we say would, even if you want to take away the, the non being part, right? Even if we're talking to like an evangelical Christian, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They would, they would say God is way bigger, right? That God is, uh, and is, has being, cause they tend to think of God as a being,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but is way bigger beyond our comprehension and understanding. How could they not also agree with the the idea that therefore, all the ways we talk about God are imperfect or is mm. so so at best, we do some really profound and moving poetry. Mm. right? Mm-hmm. Like when I think about my um, exposure to evangelical Christianity or mainline Christianity, um, both seem to really love the poetry of it all. Mm-hmm. They take that in different directions, but they do, right? Um or maybe maybe the evangelicalism I've encountered is just too localized. Mm-hmm. You know,'m I'm, I'm thinking of our our time exposed to salt and light around here, sure. right? A lot of yeah. emphasis on, um, arts led youth ministry. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least right now in this stage of it, mm-hmm. theater camps and um, music, lots of music with the bands and they, they like poetry and they like dance a lot. Mm-hmm. Dance seems to be really popular amongst both evangelicals and mainline Christians. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, just like this artistic beauty piece. It seems to be something that captures us. So, so I don't know why anybody would fight against this type of assertion. So So, is all Christian theology post-theist, even if it doesn't acknowledge it in itself, or is it distinct? Like that's a real question that I sure. would have. Uh,
0: if Tillich were here to listen to you, he would say that you are truly Protestant, Nick. like, like that question is a deeply Protestant existential question and that's that's mostly because the the basic tenets like the basic texts of protestantism that even what i just said is a really fraught sentence right but like but like the things that we say here are protestant writings that we all all protestants go yeah martin luther's very obviously a protestant right like like john calvin very obviously protestant Tillich might say that your question about isn't all Christian God talk symbolic in this way, like that question, Tillich might say, you have grasped the Protestant principle in a very important way, because he would point out that most of the reformers have a very, we might say a very loose metaphysic, right? Like like they... Um, Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy is marked by particular kinds of metaphysical tradition. And some of those metaphysical traditions are super cool, right? Like anytime we talk about, you know, God as beyond being, you know, we do that apathetic negation, God is not a thing, you know, all this stuff. Like, like that comes from a Christian Neoplatonic tradition that, that I still really, really like and that has a lot in common with, like, say, like a Tillich but like it's a particular metaphysical line of thinking that that follows neoplatonic rules of of how thought works and and how being works right and the catholic church in particular is uh, has that there but it has aquinas aquinas looms so large right and aquinas is a aristotelian metaphysical tradition that he's 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 bequeathing the church right by the time the protestants show up the protestants have this mistrust of some of that stuff. It's not that they aren't influenced by it, they are. You know, Luther is an Augustinian monk and loves Augustine and Augustine is a hybrid neoplatonist, right? Like so like like there are things there that Luther and any of the Protestants agree with, but their strategy, like the reformer strategy is always to is always to take scripture and and try to read scripture in a in both a coherent way. As if Scripture is telling one continuous story, right about about how all of this works, which it might not do, but that's the sort of the Protestant way that they they chose to take it, and also to read it uh, uh, without metaphysics, which means that they had to read it innovatively, right? They had to think of it using other kinds of metaphors, and so Calvin loves to use sort of sovereign and legal metaphors to kind of talk everything out, right? And this causes uh him to say some rather startlingly interesting things sometimes because he's he's not interested in some of the metaphysical like uh like Aquinian tradition and so he just goes eh all that stuff about God is pure act all the that, that's all bullshit we don't need that what's what's way more important to God is covenant. And why does Aquinas know that? Or why does Calvin know that? Because Calvin doesn't care about Aquinas and Calvin is just reading the Old Testament, and he's, and he's trying to use what's there to like make sense of it. Luther's the same way. Luther says, well, the cross is what matters. And so all kind of things fall under that. And it causes Luther to say metaphysical things that a lot of more metaphysical uh, Christians do not like, right? Like about God's hiddenness and, and all of this stuff. But it also causes Luther to say some startlingly original things, too like um, the freedom of the Christian is the freedom to be a creature and is not actually l- rooted in Aquinas' assent to beatific vision or theosis or stuff like that. Instead, Luther just says, I don't know. I just like to drink beer and I don't really see why drinking beer is so bad. And Luther basically is like, sounds like Catholic clergy supremacy to me, you know, and, and, there's something in us as Protestants that go, yeah, it's because it is. It's because it is that. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right?
1: <laughs> oh boy, not that
0: we Protestants don't ever do this, right? right but but yeah, so like that little rant aside, the it, it is not obvious to a lot of Christians, both even including Protestant ones that what we are doing is symbolic and artistic stuff instead and for some christians it, it it can't be so like i'll just take a sophisticated example bart is uncomfortable with tillich's approach mostly because bart wants to be able to say something really real about god precisely because he feels that the good news is that god has left god's hiddenness that God, God has drawn close and is not beyond our ability to know anymore. And it's not because of how smart we are, it's because of how gracious God is. And so for, for Bart, he sees a danger in, in, in and like a Tillichian approach, because not only can it sort of, for Bart, not only does he see it as something that can. Easily just becomes something we say about uh, a God that we pretend hasn't introduced Himself, but He also uh, thinks that maybe, maybe we end up not saying anything, you know, anything of value or anything of critical insight. You know, it's uh, one of the problems that the third that third right Christianity was dealing with was Jesus's particularity. The fact that Jesus was Jewish, the fact that 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 the scriptures are more Jewish than not Jewish, right? The fact that 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 Jesus is not white, is not blonde hair and blue eyed, and so what Nazi you know theologians decided to do was they decided to just say it doesn't matter that Jesus was those things because. That's not what makes Jesus important. Rather, God um, can be more than what God is in Jesus. God can perhaps want other things than what God does in Jesus. And uh, why do we know that? Well, Bart sees. Perhaps I think this is unfair, but Bart sees in that in that move that Nazi, uh, you know, theologians make. Bart sees a a similar germ in like a Tillichian move. Not that he knows that Tillich is not a Nazi. He definitely knows that, and he's never accused Tillich of that. But he wants to protect Christian theology from that by saying there's no need to speculate. God has decisively introduced God's self in Jesus of Nazareth.
1: Yeah, but when your assertion that there is obvious and precise revelation is met with the reality that there actually isn't
0: mm. yeah
1: not in that way I mean there is so much vagueness you can't talk to three people without 25 opinions like You're right it's not that clear Bart and and if it's not that means that our assertions that it's super clear are Also very dangerous. I don't know. The pendulum swings too far both directions, I guess, for me. Mm -hmm. I'm not comfortable when religious people of of any faith or anything talk with real senses of certainty. Yeah. That always uh, unnerves and frustrates me. Um, I I think you fundamentally cease to become a person of faith the Mm -hmm. second you allow that to become the thought process. And maybe this is why me and Bart don't always get super along. I can see the critique. I can see it's always good when there's a network of theologians around at the same time who can challenge each other and, and think yeah. about it differently. Because I think it's good for for everybody who thinks about God like this, especially if they have any power, to to have the brakes pumped a little bit. Because I mm. think every thought about god can become really dangerous um it can make us a little bit too uh makes it a little too easy for us humans to do bad things um so yeah. i think it's good that they could challenge each other but i think ultimately i'm going to come back to Tillich on this one Bart, <laughs> sorry
0: <laughs> well you know Tillich, i get that i get that there's the the parts of bart that i really like are always the astonishing parts you know are always the parts that that actually are when bart is at his most poetic <laughs> Go
1: you know figure.
0: That, i know i know the the parts about bart that are sort of amazing are are the moments where because bart has are the moments where bart does what Bonhoeffer does. Ultimately, like I, I'm not a giant Bonhoeffer fan, like not really, I don't spend a lot of time with him, but like Bonhoeffer is super Christocentric and Bart is super Christocentric, but Bonhoeffer is one of the first post theists and, and Bart is not. And, and it's in some ways it has to do with the way in which Bonhoeffer is Christocentric, you know, Bonhoeffer is Christocentric, not because he's terribly interested in Jesus's particularity the way Bart is, and not because he's trying to create a sort of like a, like a cosmic Christ that, oh, Christ can be any race. And so we've just imagined that Christ is going to be an Aryan who loves the Nazis today. Like Bonhoeffer doesn't do that either. Bonhoeffer instead talks about a, a present Christ, a contemporary Christ. He actually does what Kierkegaard does. Kierkegaard talks about Christ's contemporaneity as really the only way that human beings can know him. And so if Christ isn't experienced as alive now, then who cares? Who cares that Christ was X you know, in his particularity? And who cares that Christ is Y in his cosmic universalism? Christ needs to be the Christ for the person as well as for all of these other things. And because Bonhoeffer takes that tack, he naturally it, it, Christ, for him, naturally becomes this kind of non-metaphysical way of talking about God without theism. And so he's able to talk about, he's able to say that only a God on the gallows can save us, not because he thinks that God is currently in existence dying, because Bonhoeffer already thinks that God has edged God's self out of the world. But, but, but he's able to say only a God on the gallows can save us, in part because Christ is on the gallows. And oh and Christ is the is the the sign of the coming God, right? And which is a symbolic move that that Bonhoeffer makes. Like Bonhoeffer isn't Bonhoeffer is making a move that says, We can't know anything about God. God's totally hidden now because the world has come of age, just according to his prison writings, as the world has come of age, God has hidden himself and has edged himself out of the world. We are not, we, we can say nothing about God and any attempt to say anything about God is pure guesswork, but we can say something about Christ because Christ has met us because Christ is our brother. And And if part of being a Christian is just we read Christ as God, right? Like the cipher, the Christ cipher is live. The Christ symbol is live. Then Bonhoeffer is able to be both a Christian and a post theist because, you know.
1: Yeah. Once again, Bonhoeffer is brilliant. It speaks to something in me too, right? I agree with that. It has to be real to the people now. Christ is both known and unknown, right? God is both mm-hmm. known and unknown in Christ, right? Mm-hmm. The, that tension of, well, it's just us holding the divine and human tension in Christ, right? Christ is both divine and human. So mm-hmm. Christ can then be both known and unknowable. Uh, and we get to just hold that tension and make fun podcasts about it where we beat our heads against the mystery and, yeah. uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, and I think I agree with them. I think that that's ultimately where I come out, uh, at least right now in this season of life is on that, uh, Bonhoeffer Talikian side,
0: mm-hmm. uh, goddess symbol primarily. Yeah that's Tillich's whole thing right like the the god when we say the name god that too is a symbol like the name god is just a symbol of what tillich would say is the ground of being you know we we've talked about that before it would be a little wrong to say that that the ground of being means god like Tillich's doctrine of God is the ground of being. That's that's sort of a, that's sort of incorrect. That's too theistic of us to say, right? Like Tillich, Tillich would uh, often says, my work is between theism and atheism. Like my work is neither atheistic nor theistic. It requires. I don't know if Tillich said this exact thing, but Caputo says this. It requires a willing suspension of disbelief on both sides. Yeah. And so to read Tillich is to, as an atheist, is to suspend your disbelief. Yeah. And and to read Tillich as a theist is also to suspend your disbelief. Be and and to consider to enter into this perhaps space right where where if you truly enter the perhaps space with uh, o- openness, um, maybe something will happen. Maybe that kairotic moment will take place, right, where, where you go, oh, uh, where, where the atheist goes, oh, I'm perhaps I am confronted by something infinitely deeper than myself. And the theist is is does the same thing where the theist goes, oh, perhaps I am confronted by something infinitely deeper than the idol that I have created, you know. And and uh, and Tillich's like, yeah, that. And and if we can do that, then that's truly what we are. That's what it means to talk about this thing that we symbolize as God. And so Tillich is fine with. Tillich has this jarring moment in his systematics where he says. You know, it might be possible generations and generations from now where no human being ever utters the name God, but that's fine because God is just a symbol of the ground of being and it's, the ground of being is just a fact, like, <laughs> like it's just, it's just a reality because all that the ground of being is, is that is the reality of the fact that here we are like here being is you know
1: yeah how does one then differentiate uh in this model from what is simply a symbol of the ground of being uh, an honest uh creative attempt of a human person to reach out and know god as best as we can right Mm. between that and an idol
0: Mm, that's a great question that's a great question. So to be continued. What the hell is a pastor is hosted by Ethan Shear and Joe Schoenwolf and produced by Joe Schoenwolf.
1: Our theme song is written by Joe Schoenwolf, performed by Ian Uriola and Paul Uriola and produced by Paul Uriola.
0: Rate, review, and subscribe to us on the podcasting app of your choice.
1: Find us across the social internet at WTHIAP.
0: And visit us at WTHIAP.com to get connected to our Patreon merch playlists and more.
1: Thanks to our Patreon subscribers, Nick, Justin, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Jory, Tara, Rachel, Abby, Peter, the Reverends Langenstein, Annalise, Ian, and Ethan. Your money makes the show happen.
0: Thanks for listening. And remember, friends, things will all work out they will yeah yeah we're getting there it's just the hardest thing i've ever done that's all (laughs) that's all god gives his toughest challenges or something i don't know (laughs)